This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. You're listening to Leadership in Action on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Here again is Professor Mike Yuseem, Jeffrey Klein, and Anne Greenhall. Welcome back to Leadership in Action on Sirius XM Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm your host, Anne Greenhall, and tonight I am going solo, so feel free to join me in conversation at 1-844-WHARTON, 1-844-942-7866. And the broad theme of tonight's program in the first hour and the second hour is social impact, social change. And in the second hour, I am really delighted to have as my guest the one of the winners of the 2018 Lippman Family Prize. And the Lippman Family Prize, for uh, listeners who are joining us perhaps for the first time, the Lippman Family Prize is an annual global prize that celebrates leadership, innovation, with an emphasis on impact and transferability in the social sector. And the donors behind the prize, Barry and Marie Lippman, I just have to wax poetic for a moment, and I, I wonder if Barry and Marie are listening. But I have to say these are donors uh, who give not only money, but also their time. They are very deeply engaged in the prize, and it's a pleasure to work with them. So tonight, let me be sure to invite our guest and that is Jacob Leaf, and he is co-founder and CEO of a nonprofit organization called Ubuntu Pathways. Jacob, welcome to the show. Well, thank you. Nice to be here tonight. It's really a pleasure to have you. I'm just going to say a little bit about the organization, and then we'll dive into conversation, and I hope some listeners will join us. Ubuntu Pathways takes orphaned and vulnerable children in Port Elizabeth, South Africa, and takes them from what you say as cradle to career. So your programs form an integrated system of medical, health, educational, social services that ensure that a child who is orphaned or vulnerable can succeed in the world of higher education and employment. And, Jacob, you are <laughs> very accomplished. You've appeared in Fortune Magazine's 40 Under 40 list of the most influential young people in business. You've served as a member of the Clinton Global Initi- uh, Initiative Advisory Committee, and you were named one of the world's 101 most innovative visionaries at the Decide Now Act Summit. So, Jacob, again, an honor and a pleasure to have you on the show, and I also have to say I had the pleasure of meeting you in person uh, at our at our uh, luncheon when we were honoring our honorees. So, Jacob, would you say a little bit about how you got, um, maybe how you got started in this particular line of work? What what brought you to social change and social impact? Right, and um, well, thanks for having me tonight. Uh, I I was raised in this, to be honest with you. My mother um, would wake us up at 3 in the morning. She was running soup kitchen. She'd make us uh, go and read to the blind uh, on different radio stations. And I I hated it growing up, to be honest. And kids wouldn't want to sleep in my house because they'd have to go to work at the soup kitchen in the morning. (laughs) And I guess it it was uh, instilled in me at a very young age. I didn't realize it. Um, and then when I was, uh, my family moved to UK, I'm American, 
when I was uh, 14 years old, and I started getting into a lot of trouble. I never lived in a big city. We were in London, and I came across uh, a free Nelson Mandela march one day, and it just changed my life. I uh, was totally just taken by the color, the music. Um, I didn't really, I'd never been to South Africa. No one in my family had ever been to the continent. And I just started to volunteer for this cause. And when I was 17 in 1994, they took a group of us down to observe the transformation. And in fact, it was uh, this day uh, in 1994, oh. May 10th, when Nelson Mandela was inaugurated as the first democratically elected president of the Republic of South Africa. Um, my experience, you know, we were down there in South Africa, 17-year-olds. We were touring the country, meeting with people like Mandela, who spent their whole life in prison, and everyone on the on the, the far right as well, the neo-Nazis, the people who believed in apartheid, and the, the story that really changed my life, the situation. We were in a place called Alexandria. It's a, mm. It sits in the shadows of Santon. Santon's in Johannesburg. It looks like lower Manhattan, huge skyscrapers, and it's, in its shadows is a township called Alexandria, and there's shacks and little brick homes, and I met this woman, and uh, we started a conversation, and she was old and quite large, and she said to me uh, that she uh, ha- had waited the entire day to cast her ballot. Mm. And I just looked at her as a 17-year-old and just came out of my mouth. And I'm embarrassed not to even say it. I just spurted it out. I was like, I-, I don't understand. What do you mean you waited the entire day? And she looked at me. She's like, no, you don't understand. I've waited mm-hmm. my entire life, 85 years. And that was the <laughs> moment that I said I wanted to become part of what they're calling the new South Africa. Oh, <laughs> Jacob, that's such a that's such a beautiful story, and how uh, poetic <laughs> that we're talking about it today, tonight. That's really just uh, beyond <laughs> beyond belief. So uh, you were seventeen years old, and then what happened? <laughs> so I actually uh, heard a woman speak uh, who was working in the new constitution down in South Africa. She was an American woman, a professor at Penn, uh, Mary Frances Barry. Uh, she was a U.S. Commissioner on Civil Rights, and uh, I was like, this is going to be my, my ticket back to South Africa. And so I got back to London, I applied to Penn, and I got in, and I went to see this woman, and I was 18 years old, and she wanted as a law professor nothing to do with an 18-year-old undergrad. But I bugged her and bugged her, and we became friends, and she said, here's the deal. Find a job in South Africa, find something to do down there, and I'll figure out how to sponsor you to go down there. And we just got an internet in our dorm room. Uh, this is 1996, I guess it was. Okay. Um, on the Penn campus, and we just got the internet. And I found a job, and she figured out, you know, how I would get credit, and she sponsored me to go down. I went for six months, and I got down to Cape Town, and there was no job waiting for me. Oh. <laughs> and I'll tell you, uh, Dr. Barry, she was not one of these. She was not a woman who would have liked a phone call from me saying, uh, "Hey." There's no job waiting here. <laughs> oh. So I, I didn't know what to do, but I left Cape Town. I got on a train. And about 18 hours into that train ride, I struck up a conversation with a guy who convinced me to get off at a place called Port Elizabeth, South Africa. And Port Elizabeth is an industrial coastal city on the Indian Ocean side of the country. And uh, he said to me, why don't you get off in Port Elizabeth and come have a beer with me in the townships? And I was a white guy. This is 1997, so... Uh, I symbolized everything wrong in the country in a lot of ways, and I followed him into this township, and it was a cold, rainy night. I remember this so vividly. He said, we're going to a tavern, and we got to a shack. And, you know, we, he opened the door, and the, mu- the music stopped, and I thought, oh, this is the end of me. <laughs> the whole, you know, right out of a movie, everyone looked at me, but a guy in the corner of that room motioned me over, and uh, 
we struck up a conversation. He was a school teacher, and he said, uh, why don't you come uh, work in my school? I said, okay, but I need a place to live, and I moved with him in with his family that night. Oh. <laughs> Jacob, that's also a wonderful story. Now, just so I spent six months in these communities, um, and I wasn't a, in, involved in education. I was an entrepreneur. I was starting businesses since I was a young kid. Um, I went down there to work in the, uh, a small business unit. I was not in the social space, but what I witnessed, you know, working and living in these communities was an interesting situation where Nelson Mandela was telling the youth of the country, "Apartheid's over." Everyone can go to university. And big philanthropy, big organizations from Washington, D.C., European Union, money was pouring into the country. But everyone was defining success by how many computers they could distribute, how many cups of soup they could distribute. And I'm looking at these organization after organization coming from through the city I was working in. And they'd, you know, distribute some library books and move on to the next city. And they'd report back home about the million kids' lives they were touching in Mm -hmm. South Africa. Mm -hmm. But I'm looking at these little kids who are living in homes with mothers who themselves are children, illiterate, yeah. and they're abused, these children, and there was no way a cup of soup and a wind-up computer was going to get them to university. It just didn't make sense. It's not how I got the pen. Right. You know, I often say it was harder for me to fail in life than succeed, the amount that was invested in me. And it was sort of those moments that made me realize that none of the, the development space was really working. Everyone was, you know, celebrating these huge, these all these organizations, their great work, but they were giving these children Band-Aids when they, you know, for axe wounds. Right. <laughs> and that, I said to the guy I was living with, Banks, why don't we start our, our own organization? I was 20 years old at the time. <laughs> um, he said, sure, but he thought he'd never see me again. And I went back to Penn, and uh, I had my last year of university, and I convinced this professor, Dr. Barry, to... Uh, let me do an independent study with her for my remaining credits. Uh, and somehow she figured it out, and we held a raffle on the Penn campus. And we back then uh, they used to give away credit cards yeah. to college students, which was silly. And I took eight of them out, and we started this organization. That was that was uh, nineteen and a half years ago now. Oh, just un- unbelievable. So so. When you were first then in South Africa, was that junior year sort of as a study abroad? Experience? No, it was a, uh, I, mean, I guess so. I mean, uh, you know, it wasn't a formal program. We Not a formal, right. Yeah. And but and you said, did I hear you right? It was six months that you were abroad. I went down there for six months. Six yeah. months. And then came back senior year and managed to, <laughs> managed to persuade your uh, mentor to have you finish out your credits once again in South Africa. So you returned. And uh, what was, how did your, how did the family react when you returned? <laughs> well, I'll tell you something. We said we were going to start with grade eight students, okay? So that's like 14-year-olds, 13-year-olds. And we said, could we take the most vulnerable children, the kids who had been sexually abused, the children who had been orphaned, um, and what if we, could we get them to university? That was our first, that was our first sort of target. And what we quickly realized is starting grade eight is too late in the game. Yeah. And so over the last 19 years, we've worked ourselves back and back and back to where we are today. So today we start with pregnant moms who are HIV positive. Okay. And, you know, what I always tell people is in most of the world, parenting begins when the baby's born. But actually, it begins in the first trimester. Yeah. And we know that here in Philadelphia or New York or where I'm mm-hmm. sitting today. But 
the science is rock hard behind that. If you don't get that right, you're going to play catch up your whole life. So we start with HIV positive mothers who are teenagers themselves, and we ensure a healthy birth. We have a 100% success record with this. Mm. And then we work with these children every day of their lives, providing them what we say children all around the world deserve, and that's everything. We don't say, well, we don't do that. We're not a vision organization. They can't see the blackboard. You buy them glasses. Yeah. And so... You know, you when you introduced me, you said this thing, you know, you referred to this innovation award we got, yes. and I always laugh at that, because what we do is not innovative. It's actually simply, it's an old recipe. It's what, it's how I was raised. It's probably how you were raised. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's, the, 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 mm-hmm. the big difference in what we're doing is applying the will, meaning, can we invest in the disadvantaged community, in disadvantaged children, in the same way that you invest in your own children, and afford the same dignity? Because most of philanthropy, most of development is about how do you reach more kids for less money. Right, right. And that's, that's, I've never once with my own two sons, I've never once said, what's the cheapest health care I can provide them? <laughs> right? I say, right. what's the best health care? What's yeah. the best health care I can afford? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I saw... Sorry. No, no, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but I just so appreciate how you're really you're going so deep as opposed to trying to go broad. Well, you know, we, we drew a seven-kilometer zone, and we have about 350,000 people living in extreme poverty. And we just go deeper. And rather than scale up, and you know, this idea of scale is, um, I think it's destroyed the whole nonprofit sector. And by the way, I, we bought into it. So when I started, you know, this idea of I, my, my, my Penn college advisor said to me, oh, this is nice, but what are you really going to do with your life? I mean, social entrepreneurship was not even a word being used then. That's right, yeah. Um, yeah. You know, now we can you know, take courses at a word on it. Right. Um, and, you know, just, I just felt like we needed, to, we, we needed to redefine the way development was really happening. And so, um, you know, we set out to just go deep into one community, seven-kilometer zone, and do everything it takes to break the cycle of poverty for these children and help them realize their own potential. Yeah. So so you started to start at the beginning, and maybe I might just go back there because you said something that is pretty remarkable, and i just like to underscore it, and that is that you start first with pregnant mothers who are HIV positive, and so far, and I'm going to knock wood here, you've had, I think I heard you say, 100% success rate with these mothers-to-be. That's correct. And just to give us a feel about how many mothers are we are we talking about? About 40 mothers a year. Forty mothers a year that is wonderful, and so uh, can you say a little bit of what what has fueled your success just with with this group? Well, I think in general, fueled is this idea that raising children is not scalable; it's deeply individualized, and understanding that um, what works for one child doesn't work for the other, and that we all have our own pathways uh, out of poverty and that you're, you're with our children during the good times and the bad times. What drives me crazy in the philanthropic world is that, you know, you get a grant from a foundation, they s- expect a 100% success record. Most of what we do doesn't work, and a lot of time <laughs> we're working in really complex environments, like generational poverty, things that are out of our control. And you need to be there for the children you know, every day of the year. And that's real. There's, I always say there's nothing more sustainable than investing in a child every day of her life. And I say that because everyone's always like, what's your exit strategy? 
No one said that with their own kids. Right. So good. So let me take a moment to remind way, everyone. I'm 41 years old, and I called my. I was on the phone with my father today asking advice on something. That's so great, right. <laughs> Jacob. All right. Well, I'm so delighted to speak with you. And this is Leadership <laughs> in Action. I'm Ann Greenhall, and I'm uh, spending the hour with Jacob Leaf, and he is the co-founder and CEO of Ubuntu Pathways. So, all right. So we've got the, we've got the 40 women. They go through a successful pregnancy. They deliver a child, or perhaps even twins. Who knows? And now what? We then start. We call our first thousand day program. Oh. Which is really geared towards a young mother at that age. Um, parenting skills, how do you just care for your child, and how do you start in gaining the skills you need to possibly access work and so forth. Then that child enters our early childhood program, which is a play-based curriculum really on par with the finest early child programs anywhere in the world. And, you know, a lot of what we do is it's about quality. We've built a facility, a campus, that, I mean, you'd feel comfortable giving birth to or mm-hmm. send your own children mm-hmm. to. It is so absolutely state-of-the-art. And people criticize us to know, and how dare you spend $7 million when we built this back in 2007, you know, when there's so much poverty in the area. But what I realized is that if you have money anywhere in the world, you hire an architect, you hire a design think firm, you think about your goals, what you're trying to accomplish. But in disadvantaged areas, whether it's you know, anywhere, it's just a bigger box you build. Mm. And so we want to set out to build a space that would win global architecture awards, that would make a statement that you know, access to great education and health care is a child's right, not a privilege. It has to be. And so our building itself is the very core of we call it, you know, sustainable community development. It's a, it's a statement that, you know, I remember when we were building the complex, we had these big billboards outside with the renderings of the building, and the kids used to say, oh, that belongs in town. Oh, and what mm. they were saying is that yeah. belongs somewhere else. It's not, it's not, it's too good for mm. it. It's too nice to be here. The word they use was museum, it translated to. And that's why we had to build it where, the way we built it. And so we take these kids on a journey mm-hmm. until they get to about age 16 or 17. And then we split them into two tracks, our university track where we put about 12 kids a year into university, and then our vocational training where we're putting kids into uh, em- directly into employment. And the idea, our end goal, our North Star, is that stable health, stable income. So whether you're a charter mm-hmm. accountant or you're a factory worker, if you're a, bringing home an income, you're healthy, and you're a good citizen. Mm-hmm. I think we're not talking about any, nothing about here in America. What does it mean? What does citizenship mean to be part of a community, not just take, but to give back? And it's really what, at the end of the day, what the word Ubuntu means. This oh. idea that I am because you are, that we exist because of one another. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Again, so wonderful, Jacob. I can see why you won the Libman Family Prize. It's so clear. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Um, all right. So I just have to ask you now that, you know, you made such a wonderful point. And uh, you're reminding me of some work that we're doing with our undergraduates, actually, with our freshmen on just this notion of um, implicit bias, unconscious bias, assumptions, and how part of the educational process is also working with the community, the broader community, to have the community understand that the community is worthy of these kinds of opportunities. Is that would that is that fair to say? I think that's right, and that's 
what I was trying to get to with the building. It's that yeah. these things should be, you should have, it should be a right, not a privilege. Mm. Like these are basic child human rights to have access to good health care and education and, um, and to know that and to demand things and to be able to start advocating for you know, these rights. Yeah, absolutely. So, so Jacob, uh, uh, already I'm wondering how how do you do it? So, for example, you have the the 1,000 day program for for new mo- mothers, and I'm I'm going to ask parents, both fathers and mothers, or mainly for the mothers. Uh, well, it's it's mainly mothers. Hope mm-hmm. uh, you know we do have um, uh, we have, we have more and more fathers. To be honest with you, it's um, which is exciting. Yeah. And I'll tell you one of the, um, about seven years ago, we've been working with a firm called Beck and Dickinson, a huge medical uh, supplies company, um, medical equipment company, and they helped us build our pharmacy and our clinic. And they um, had provided us a, um, a, a an ultrasound machine, something mm-hmm. which, one of these 3D machines, which we would never have budgeted or board would have approved on these 3D fancy machines. And, I didn't think anything of it. They donated. It was wonderful. But in the first, to be able to show a young couple what that there's a, you know, that image of that yeah. little baby inside right. of them, it makes parenting real. It actually makes it real. And we talk a lot about behavior change in our business where mm-hmm. a lot of what we do, like we have knowledge, doesn't necessarily translate to behavior change, right? I mean, we know right. you shouldn't drink or smoke, but people do that. Doesn't, you know, it's just a very... But be able to show a young mother and a young father a little image of that inside of her body, it all of a sudden becomes real. What goes into her body is going to affect this little thing. And so we start that. We, we, we go that far back. Mm-hmm. And then we, we take these kids on this journey. And one of the most important aspects of what we do is going into the child's home. Oh. Because there's no point in investing in a child in math and science or education and, and then sending them home at the end of the day and they're being abused or there's no roof over their head or right? there's no food. And really, it's about, um, so we go into their home, we stabilize that home environment. We make sure there's a roof over their head. There's a place for them to study as they get older. There's a little light for them so they can, you know, read their books late into the night if they have to. And it, it's, I, I think the, the best way to understand what it is we're doing is that it's parenting. Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't that's know how to describe it. And that's why I always <laughs> laugh when the people say, oh, Talk about our great, come to our conference and speak about your, your great innovation. I'm like, it's not that innovative. <laughs> That's so great. <laughs> and we're coming full circle to, I have an image of your mother <laughs> in my head, <laughs> taking, making sure you and any friend who sleeps overnight is going to that, is going to that soup kitchen. So, but now to, let's say, to back to that thousand day program mm. uh, on parenting skills, how, you know, how do you go about spooling up on the state of the art program for parenting skills you, i'm sorry the question is how do we yeah, yeah how do you i mean you realize you're you're you are you are dedicated to bringing um children up from birth right into mm-hmm. their career and along the way I, i'm trying to put myself in your shoes you know i realize that you know what i need to i need to create I need to have a parenting class for young mothers. But now, you know, I need to find out, well, what does constitute the best parenting class? So, you know, you have this, uh, these challenges at each moment of the child's life. So I'm just kind of curious on how do you go about figuring out what is best? 
That's a good question. It's a, it's a combination of a lot of research. We, we look at global best practices, but what differentiates us from a lot of these sort of a lot of international NGOs is that our staff, 96% of our staff, come from the communities we serve, and uh, 68% of our staff have at least a bachelor's degree. So we're okay. looking at it's about people, right? People raise kids. I don't need any more computers. I don't need more pencils and pens or you know, we we have enough tr- uh, drugs in our pharmacy. We need good human beings, coaches, teachers, doctors. And so the money we raise, 100% of it goes to hiring people. Okay. okay. And so I, I think what I'm trying to get is the, the answer to that question is hiring good human beings. Mm-hmm. It's about human interaction. It's about being able to connect with children, having the the trainings to be able to, you know, in, uh, to deal with a child one thing to read a dashboard about you know x amount of children are abused not others to like look a child in the eyes who's been sexually abused and be able to counsel them and be there for them and it's, it's very intense it is intense and the participants in your in your program um are they are they volunteers do you recruit you know how do people have the opportunity to participate so you're saying our employees are well no uh, well I'm going to get to your employees because I okay. want to hear more about that but I, the, my first question is just about the say the women who the 40 women each year who have the chance to be a part of Ubuntu pathways how does that happen right so at this stage they have to live within our geographical zone yes um, and at this stage the way to enter is if you're a pregnant mother who's already connected to a family in our program. Uh. So you're living in a household. Uh, we have limited uh, resources, right? And yeah. we have 2,000 children is what we feel is the really our capacity to do well. And um, we, we, we say we, so we work with these, but you have to be motivated. A motivated client is the most important thing. It took me a long time to learn this. Yeah. And I fought this with my staff. I used to say, well, the kids who didn't show up are the ones who need it the most. The truth is there's, unlimited amount of children out there who need our help and we can't help you unless you're really ready ready to take advantage of us and we don't kick you out for failing your math test we kick you out for not showing up for your tutoring oh that's so it's not great. one strike you're out but it's tough we kicked 162 children out this year oh boy so five percent a year and you don't get totally you can still work yourself in you still have access to our clinic and our psychosocial support but you're not in our core program if you're not willing to work Oh, very good. Well, we, have a, we, have, we sort of have a creative formula that we think we can help you get out of this situation you're in and achieve your dreams, but it's play by our rules. And you have to want to do it. And so what you're really looking for is a commitment. There's a need, but we must also have the commitment to, to participate. It's a contract we sign with our clients. Um, and... Our services are free in exchange for you playing by our rules. You know, we have a lot of stakeholders, our community, our investors, our donors from around the world, and people want to see results. And that's why we're doing this. This is hard work. Yeah. And we put a, and we've a, I have an incredible team of human beings in London, New York, South Africa, and they dedicate their lives to this. And it's if you're not going to, you know, take it seriously, we'll find someone who will. So let's hear, let's hear the rules. Show up on time. Uh, show up on time. And show up. Come in. And, you know, and, and yes, that's it. Listen, discipline. 
It's not. It's just about showing up and being part of it, being present. I wish I could tell you there was this more complex than that. It's not. You know, our, our, it's, it's, it's not about, oh, you have to score 70 on your exam. No, we'll work with you. We understand this is a terribly difficult situation you're in, but you have to give that effort. Okay. Uh, I love it. All right. So <laughs> you're reminding me a little bit of myself because I ask my students, I, I do, I say, you need to come to class, you need to be on time, <laughs> and you need to participate. And by participate, that doesn't necessarily be mean be the one to talk <laughs> all the time or the loudest, but it does mean being engaged. So I'm wondering if you also have that level of requirement, because it is some, you know, I mean, people can show up, but not necessarily engage. Right. I mean, when we say show up, we, we, it's, we speak the way you speak. It's, it's about engaging and being present and participating and, you know, just wanting to change your life. Yeah. Okay, so now I'm I'm wondering if you give people like a, you know is this I'm I'm going to guess I'm going to put words in your mouth here is this a, um, a merciful um, approach? In other words, if someone doesn't show up a couple of times, three times, you know, do you have a certain? Uh, you're looking for patterns of behavior. So how many behaviors yeah, we, make a pattern? Want, it's, it's it's not specific. Okay. You know, it's it's different for everybody. Um, and everyone has different circumstances, and we'll work with you. We, we want you to succeed, right? But we need you to, uh, I, you know, it's it's uh, it's not a specific science to it. Okay, that's so great. <laughs> so you're taking, as you said earlier at the top of the hour, that you're really this is highly individualized. That's right. So this is not about applying a particular formula to all of the participants, but. In general, people have to show up and they have to um, um, engage. All right, and now you have referenced a few times to the wonderful team of people who work with you. So could you say a little bit about the people who are engaged in, in the effort? Right. So, I mean, we have an office in Lower Manhattan, New York, uh, eight people. Uh, probably everyone there is under the age of 40, young, idealistic uh, men and women who um, – you know, are helping us uh, brand ourselves, build collateral to help us fundraise. Uh, in London, we have three individuals who do the same. And then in South Africa, we have 65 people who are right there in the trenches every day dealing with, uh, you know, on the front lines. And whether it's teachers, coaches, nurses, doctors, um, you know, we have our a charter accountants, our financial department. It's it's you know it's a huge group of individuals to to run an operation like this. Okay, say again. I'm sorry, I missed that. How many in South Africa? Sixty-five. Sixty-five. Okay, sixty-five. And I'm I'm just curious. At um, you are the CEO and the founder. Do you have a um, smaller team that works closely with you? Absolutely. So I've got an executive team that have all been together. We've been together 12 years now. Oh, that's beautiful. really, it's magical. You know, you talk about mentors. I surround myself with people who have completely different skill sets. I mean, and, it, you know, it's, it's a little bit like family. I mean, we, we can't stand each other at times, but we, are all, <laughs> we realize that we're there for the same reasons. Yeah. We're so close. We've been through such unbelievable situations from... You know, whether it's attempted kidnapping threats, whether it's, you know, being held up at gunpoint, you know, dealing with young 
babies have been raped. We've seen it all and done it together. That mm-hmm. when you've been through it, you know that even if you disagree with each other, you're in it for the same reasons. And mm-hmm. um, it's a really special leadership team that we've got. There's no doubt about it. And it's one of the things that excited me about this Litman Prize is, yes, there was a financial, you know, a check that came with it, but it yeah. also gave us an opportunity to begin to leverage the university. Um, whether we did there's scholarship offers for some of my staff to be able to take courses. To, right. There is a just wait. So we're really beginning to explore the, and see how we can you know, deepen our relationship with the university. It's exciting. That's wonderful. So I'm just so say a little bit about the the roles of members in the executive team. Sure. So I've got my uh, chief program officer uh, who oversees all program design and development, uh, analyzes all our data. We've got our CFO who is. Uh, I think we all understand that yeah. role. Make sure we safeguard our resources, manage it, you know, spend accordingly. And mm-hmm. um, we've got our, our deputy president, Nobani, um, based in South Africa, whose role, I mean, most of our executive is based down there, but whose role is to really deal with community relations, community politics, as well as my co-founder, Banks, the man I first yes. lived with when I moved in down there, who at this stage, Banks' role is almost 100% community relations. The politics of living in a mini city of 400,000 people with little infrastructure and uh, 86% unemployment and what goes on and how do you interact? I mean, I, mm-hmm. I could live there for 20 years and not understand that. Right, right. Um, we've about, got our... Yeah, marketing? Right. How about marketing? Our, 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 Eric, we call the chief external relations officer. And this was our, um, this is an American man uh, who was based down in uh, South Africa for 10 years, helping build our capacity on there as a sort of a chief operating officer role okay. back to America and now oversees all of our um, fundraising. Very good. Um, and then um, how about IT? We do not have a chief IT officer <laughs> at all. Um, probably should, but listen, you know. How about people officer? Well, we, so we, we talk a lot about our people development. Um, and that's a core part of what I think really – so we put over a million and a half rand a year, which is about 120,000 U.S. dollars, just into staff development and training in South Africa. Um, so we, it's really a, a special program that we developed with a foundation in the U.K. called the Bertha Foundation. Uh-huh. And so we call it the Bertha Ubuntu Internal Leaders Development Program, which is – the acronym is BUILD. And it's about developing pathways for individuals within the organization to – further themselves. Um, I mean, one of our great success stories is this young woman named Fazeka, who, when she joined us, she was a, um, a hairdresser in a shipping container. And she now has a bachelor's degree in uh, social work, pursuing a master's, and runs our entire clinic. And I mean our <laughs> clinic, you know, which has 400 people in, in uh, HIV meds, of which we have a 97% adherence rate. I mean, it's, you know, never have given birth you know, to an HIV-positive baby. It's extraordinary. This is a woman that could, uh, you know, in any, you know, if she had the opportunity and raised in a different situation, you know, would have her PhD at Harvard by now. Oh, so good. And then how about in the London and the New York or offices? How are they organized? Right, so our London team is, is only three individuals. Right. Um, led by an extraordinary woman, Beth Honing, who is just 32 years old and has been with us, maybe a little older than it, um, has been with us over... 12 years now. She was, you know, she was a kid herself. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it, it just speaks to us being able to develop human beings, right? I mean, the, the, the length that people stay with us is something I'm so proud of. And by the way, we have plenty of problems, right? Every day is another challenge. We make plenty of mistakes, but we try to give people the chance to, to grow and to, 
see that there's you know there's more opportunity out there, and they, they I think people also see that this is it's a very special place. Mm-hmm. Um, so we have three individuals there. We raise about 20% of our budget in the UK, mostly through the South African white South African community that oh. um, is based in the UK. Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, and then New, New York, York yeah, yeah, we have nine people, um, and uh, it's. You build all our collateral there. We do all of our data analysis here because we, we find it's uh, cheaper to hire people here to analyze our data than it is to in South Africa. And then we, we you know, we throw these big fundraising events. We you know, do all our grant writing out of New York, and and I find myself living on an airplane. <laughs> Very good. So, Jacob, on the on the financial side, um, you know, is what percentage? grants, what percentage from donors, you know, just roughly, just curious. That's a great question. So when we... Oh, I may have, did I, might have lost Jacob. All right. So we're going to get Jacob back on the, back on the line in a minute. And I'm just going to recap. You are listening to Leadership in Action on Sirius XM radio, powered by the Wharton School. And we are in the process of speaking with Jacob Leaf, co-founder and CEO of Ubuntu Pathways. And Ubuntu Pathways is a nonprofit organization that takes orphaned and vulnerable children in Port Elizabeth, South Africa, takes them from cradle to career. And what I'm finding, you know, so much is interesting about Jacob's uh, interview, and one of the main points that's really coming out is the notion of going deep as opposed to broad. So, Jacob, I think we have you back on the line here. I apologize. Here. I'm not sure what happened okay, there. Okay, but we're so, I'm so glad to have you have you back. And we were talking about your New York office, and I know that you do most of your data analysis there. And we were just on the topic of fundraising. I was just curious about grants and donors and just in general what the what the breakdown is. Sure. So I want to tell a story to, to uh, highlight this. So once we started the organization, it was a struggle to raise money and to raise the right type of capital. And I started to look at organizations out there, and the ones that were being put on the main stages at all the big conferences and they were getting the big grants were saying they were working with 20,000, 30,000, 40,000 kids. Mm-hmm. So we quickly, I thought to myself, what if we designed some of our programs to reach those numbers? And for some reason, I chose the number 40,000. Okay. And I said, guys, we need to design programs, and we start ticking boxes. So we would, you'd come to a workshop we did, we'd tick a box, and that was counted as one. We weren't lying. We're not manipulating our data. This was real. This is how everyone else was doing it. And before I knew it, money started pouring in. We were raising eight, nine, ten million million a year. I was getting seven figures from the U.S. government, DFID, Canadian government. Money was pouring in. We were on the main stage at Davos. We were winning awards. I was on planes with Bono. And it was all nonsense. We realized that it was a it was bad money it was just about it was all it was all a competition about who could claim to reach more kids it wasn't we were touching kids with like a workshop we weren't changing anyone's lives and i'll tell you what what what, what our big moment where we decided to really shift yeah. our whole focus we were with this seven figure gift a year from five years million dollars a year from the u.s government and part of it was to counsel a thousand girls under the age of 18 who had been um abused raped and our our um, account manager, who you know, came down to look at her data after the second quarter, and she took one look and said, "There's no way you're going to hit your target." And to count it as one child, you have to give them five counseling sessions. 
And we were saying, yeah, but anyone who's been abused knows you don't need five counseling. You're probably getting counseled for life. It's not like five counseling sessions and you're okay. And it was at that moment when we realized that big foundation money wasn't meant for us. Like, there's a difference between raising money and raising children. And we were raising (laughs) money. We forgot what we were all about. And at that moment, we said, you know what? It took us five years to weed ourselves off of all that bad money. We called it drug money. It was exciting. <laughs> it allowed us to play in the big clubs. We stood in Davos and then skull, all these fancy places. But it wasn't. It was killing our soul. And today, we have a six, five to $6 million budget of unrestricted capital. We work with family foundations, a few foundation, um, bigger foundations that will, will support what we want. Yeah. And we, we take unrestricted capital – and we do what we want with that money. If I want to spend 100% of your grant on paper clips, but I'm accomplishing my goal, well, I know my business. Maybe I need those paper clips. Right. And I just so today, we've really shunned the big foundation world. Um, we raised our money off of a lot of, uh, to be honest, Wharton uh, alumni, individuals <laughs> who uh-huh. will sit down and talk to us. And, yeah engage with us and understand right. what it is we're trying to And what I say to them is, hey, you send your child to a $40,000 a year private school, it's okay for me to spend $4,000 on a child in sub-Saharan Africa who's been raped and living in a shack. That's not, this is not a, something, we should not be talking about cost effectiveness, you know? So great. <laughs> well, Jacobs, let me just take a moment to say that, uh, listeners, you're listening to Leadership in Action, and I'm Ann Greenhall, and really honor and a pleasure tonight to speak with Jacob Leaf about his organization, Ubuntu Pathways. So, uh, Jacob, I also have to say, you know, all the radio has just been so therapeutic for me. There, every show I do, I learn something, cause for reflection. I just have to share with you that right now you're making me feel a little better about myself because before <laughs> the show... Um, of course, did my prep, and before the prep, I was working on completing uh, a report that I need to do for a very modest grant that I have that is supporting um, undergraduate business education. You know, business has supplanted English as the number one major in the in the country, and so there are some wonderful foundations such as the Teagle Foundation uh, who are. Uh, Asking the question, if business is the wonder, number one major, how are we going about teaching business? So I have a very modest grant. And I have underspent. I didn't spend all the money that I uh, had allocated to me this year. And I'm before the show, I'm thinking, how am I going to explain that? And the honest answer is the energy went less into paying dollars for people to do things, lunches, travel, you know, conferences, and instead went into the development of a course. (laughs) (laughs) So I feel better now because I think I can say, listen, (laughs) we could just be have a game here of how much money can we spend, or we can say, well, how was that money spent? And was it spent in a more impactful way? So thank you, Jacob. I I feel much better. (laughs) All right, so uh, now leadership in action, we would be remiss if we didn't talk a little bit about you and how you see your own leadership. So could you say a little bit about your leadership journey? Wow. Um, when I started this, uh, I didn't know what I was doing. I, uh, <laughs> you know, you, but I think things, one of the things I'm most proud of has been our acceptance to learn from our mistakes, yeah. that we fail a lot. 
that we make a lot of mistakes, and that's okay. And I hope that the, I, I think that that has really, you know, gone down throughout the entire organization. Um, when I was at a 10-year anniversary, I was running our organizations to a cliff edge. Cliff edge. I didn't know how to build it from from any sort of that startup mentality where, you know, working everyone as hard as they can, first in, last to leave. I, was, I mean, we were all killing ourselves. And I was just driving everyone harder and harder and thinking, growth, 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 growth. And I came across an extraordinary human being, Andrew Rolf, who um, he was CEO of Pret-a-Mâché and built it up and sold it off. And when I met him, he was uh, running a private equity firm, a South African guy in New York. Um, and he, at the time, he was chairman of Jimmy Choo. Hmm. I didn't know what Jimmy Choo was. And you know, he had joined our well, he joined our board, and he he sat me down and he threw the Jimmy Choo play because we were looking for a new chairman, and I needed someone to help me sort of instill a different sense of business acumen into the organization and help us take it to the level. And he threw the Jimmy Choo playbook at me, and I took one look at it, and I said, "What is this?" He said. Well, I'm going to treat you like I treat every CEO of every one of my portfolio companies. And I said, what is this, high-end women's shoes? He said, yes. I said, okay, that's <laughs> nice, but I don't think this is going to work. I mean, I deal with orphaned and vulnerable children in South Africa. And he said, listen, here's the deal. Give me three months. We're going to meet 60 minutes every Tuesday. And if you don't feel like we're changing the organization and you're improving, then I will walk away. I can stay on the board. I can leave. I'll continue to financially support you at the same level. But no, that's it. And that was nine years ago. We, to this day, no matter where we are in the world, we meet for 60 minutes every Tuesday. And he has taught me that it doesn't matter if you're dealing with high women's shoes or, you know, orphan and vulnerable children. There's a certain way to grow your business. You know, and I, just, I feel like I've probably got, a, you know, an MBA plus yeah, yeah. through my experiences working with him and learning how to restructure the company. And um, I don't – he's just been an incredible mentor to me. Um, and, you know, we couldn't be more different at this stage. I mean, he's an incredibly religious person. I'm not religious at all. He lives in Greenwich, Connecticut. I live in Greenpoint, Brooklyn. I mean, we couldn't be more different. Mm -hmm. And we are so close and so aligned. And um, it's been a really wonderful experience to have someone to, you know, walk, uh, to coach me through this. That's so great. And uh, I, I really appreciate how he served as a kind of mentor to you and helped you understand how to grow the business. How about when it comes uh, not so much to the what, but sort of the how, the how you lead? I uh, I like to say, I'm, you know, my, my door is always open. I, I talk a lot with my team. Mm -hmm. I like face-to-face -face contact. I like picking up the phone. I like, you know, whether it's a Zoom or Skype. You'll be able to see people. I don't believe in just email correspondence. I mm -hmm. think that human interaction is just so essential. Mm -hmm. I'm probably not the most efficient. I, there's no doubt about it. I look at these businesses, and I'm so impressed with their efficiencies and their, you know, how they've streamlined processes. It's not my style. Um, I'm a terrible manager of people, but my team knows I believe in them. And uh, mm -hmm. I see my role as uh, one to you know encourage and to get my get get the team um, behind one singular vision and believing that we can do it. Is is there any way in which you might see your role as um, as the leader of the organization as a kind of parenting role? No. I, 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 I see where you're going, but I don't really feel that with my mm -hmm. team. And my, my leadership team is, they're my peers. I mean, I don't, I don't run this organization. I run it with them. I really, 
yes, I'm CEO, and yes, I founded it, and I have my unique story and experiences. But they, just you know, these individuals have joined. They're the ones that keep me going. They're the ones who, you know, refill my battery every day to when I walk right. in and see that they're still working as hard as I work. Yeah, and I very much, I do want you to know, Jacob, how much I so appreciate your emphasis on mistakes. I mean, at the very start of our interview, you right away you brought up, you know, when we first started, we started with 14-year-olds. <laughs> and then I realized that that was a mistake. <laughs> so, you know, in, so in fact, just for fun, would you rattle off, like, can you think of the top three mistakes you've made? Oh, I mean, it's endless. We <laughs> Everything we do, every day. But I mean, I think... One of the biggest mistakes we did was my – it came from me and my just insistence that we were going to level the playing field by investing in governments and mm. early on. Um, and what I realized is we had no controls of those, over those schools, right? I mean, they were, they were, it, we couldn't hold them accountable. And I, the, the, I insisted it was like six straight years until my colleague Jana was – enough, enough. Let's do it ourselves. We can hold ourselves accountable. We'll never be able to hold those schools accountable. And that was a really big moment for us. Um, that's so good. I don't know. It's yeah. Well, I mean, I and I well, you there. gave us. I'll just share one other. You said you know you can raise cash or you can raise children. Yeah, <laughs> that's that was a beautiful illustration. Well, we've really as, yeah. this idea of failure. I mean, my colleague who wrote Jordan, who's um, been with us since you know for six, seventeen years, one of our Americans on our, our executive team. He runs our external relations. He's based in New York. He runs a podcast called Failures from the Field. Ah, oh, very good. Because have you ever heard a nonprofit CEO stand up at a conference and talk about what went wrong? I always say to people, we go to these conferences, if we were all doing half of what we said we were doing, there'd be no poverty in the world. <laughs> it's not. It's like it's it's a. We have to create a more an environment where we can discuss honestly with our with the foundations and the philanthropists, how difficult this is and why it's not always working. Oh, Jacob. And the, the important lessons that we learn from that and so forth. Well, I really want to thank you so much. And I would like you to have our listeners know how they can learn more about Ubuntu Pathways and also about your book. So my book, I'm really proud of. It took four years to write, and it was the book I wanted to write. And it's, uh, I always tell everyone it's a tell-all. It's there. It's from the beginning to end, all the mistakes. It's a, it's a, it's a book of failure. It's called I, I Am Because You Are, and um, it's, uh, it's out there at Amazon and wherever books can be found, I guess. Support your local bookstore. That's what I always tell people. Um, but our website is uh, ubuntupathways.org. That's U-B-U-N-T-U, pathways.org. All right. Well, Jacob, I really want to thank you so much for being on our show tonight. It was really, truly an honor and a lot of fun talking to you as well. Well, thanks so much, Anne, and uh, have a good evening. Very good. And I'm trusting I'm going to see you at Penn. (laughs) I will come see you. All right. Very good. Thank you. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.